If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to the book of Genesis this morning. We're going to begin in verse 28 of chapter 46. Uh, When we left off from Jacob last week, last Sunday, he had just discovered that his son, whom he had presumed to be dead, he had not seen in over 20 years, and he thought him to be dead, devoured by animals, that his son is yet alive, and he's down in Egypt. And by God's sovereignty, he has been ascended to the place of vizier in Egypt, the second in command in all of Egypt, and that as a result of this, it was God's provision to rescue Jacob's family and invite him to come down, all his family, and to leave the land of Canaan, the land of promise, which was a challenge for him, and enter into Egypt to be rescued from the famine that was going on, this global worldwide famine that was occurring And so uh, that's where we left off. They had just entered into Egypt, and that's where we're going to pick up our story this morning. Uh, We're going to start in verse 28 of chapter 46 and read through about halfway of chapter 47. So I'm going to read all of this, and then we're going to um, walk through it and seek to make some observations and applications from it. So church, let our souls hear from God's word this morning. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youths, even until now, both we and and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come into the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock." Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the lives of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. 
Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Let's pray. Our Father, what a blessing it's been this morning to gather with your people and to sing together of your goodness and your sovereignty, the reality that you are in control no matter what is happening around us. And Father, we know that because we read stories like this from your word, and we see your character, and we see your attributes, that you are always in control, and you're never not in control. And Father, as we rejoice in that thought, and sometimes wrestle with that thought, we pray, Father, that you would allow us this morning to feast on the truth that we have in this passage. As we prepare to feast on physical food this week, Lord, may we nourish our souls from the bounty that you have set before us in your word. We thank you for it. We ask that you would not just make us smarter about, us, about it, Lord, that you would change us as a result of it. Literally, that you would change us. Us in this room, us at home, us downstairs, Lord, as your people. We want to be different having encountered you in your word. So do your work right now, even as we begin to unpack this story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can divide this passage again into into three sections. That's not always the case. It just happens to be lately that there's three sections to this passage. The first, we're really just going to look at the first three verses, which is this tender reunion between father and son. And then the closing verses of chapter 46, bridging into chapter 47, uh, we're going to see Jacob preparing his brothers to meet with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh meeting with his brothers, and that the result of that is that they are given the best of the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And then in the final section, the verses 7 through 12 of chapter 47, we're going to see Jacob brought before Pharaoh, and this ironic scene of Jacob, the patriarch of the Israelites, blessing Pharaoh, the leader of the enemy of Israel. So let's look at each of these sections one at a time and just a a few observations that I want us to note from that and then hopefully draw out some application to our lives as well. There's a couple of things I want us to notice in this first section where we see uh, Jacob finally being reunited with his long-lost son, Joseph. First, and just in the opening line there, we see that Moses says he sent Judah ahead of him into the land. He sent Judah ahead. Honestly, I don't know who that pronoun is referring to, whether it's referring to Jacob, a lot of scholars think he's referring to Jacob, or whether that's the Lord. Ultimately, it is the Lord because we know that the Lord is in control, right? He's orchestrating this whole thing. But this is, a, this is a foreshadowing of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Moses, Moses tells us that, that Jacob is, or excuse me, Judah, Judah is sent ahead of the family. This is a foreshadowing of the role that Judah will have in Jacob's family. And, and as the, the news of uh, Israel, as the story of Israel continues even into the book of Exodus, we will see more and more the, the role, the critical role that the tribe of Judah plays. Uh, 
First, we see this in when the kingdom of Israel is divided years later, hundreds of years later, after the sons of Solomon do a terrible job leading the nation, the nation is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the southern kingdom being much more faithful to Yahweh and much more concerned about preserving the purity of worship of Yahweh. That southern kingdom is comprised of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, the youngest. But then, of course, most importantly, what comes out of Judah is the Redeemer, the promised Messiah, uh, and he is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we'll see in a couple of chapters, in chapter 49, as, as Jacob is dying, he's blessing his sons, and he looks at Judah and he says, from you will come a lion. And he's referring to Jesus. And so the mention of Judah here being sent ahead of them is a, a foreshadowing of Christ. It's reminding us of what's really happening here in this story, that just as Judah is sent ahead to prepare the land of Goshen for Jacob's family, so Jesus was sent ahead to redeem a people, sinners like you and I, back to himself. And then he was sent back to heaven, and one day he will be sent back down here to prepare his kingdom for all of eternity for those whom he has redeemed. And so let us not forget what is really going on here, even though we're looking at families and individuals and how he reconciles and reunites, above and beyond all of this, God is working out his plan of redemption, which includes you and I sitting here today. That is the overarching why of this entire story that we find in Genesis but then most importantly, what we see in these opening three verses is the, is the embrace of a father and his son. The embrace of, of Jacob and Joseph finally reunited. This tender scene where father and son embrace. And we're, and we're told that, that Joseph falls on his father's neck and he weeps. The word picture that we're to have from that phrase is that Joseph's kind of holding things together until he sees his father. And then when he sees his father, he just lets it all go. And there's no more any attempt to, to remain unemotional and gentlemanly. Instead, he just falls on his father's neck and he weeps. What a blessing for both of these men. For, for a, a father to be reunited to his son whom he had lost and had presumed to be dead, hadn't seen him for over 22 years, and thought he never would. And, and a son reunited to his father, and Joseph never thought he would see his dad again. And yet here they are, embracing. And their, and their reunion, their, their embrace is, is characterized by a, a complete lack of concern for decorum, right? They just fall on one another's neck. Their, their embrace, their reunion is characterized by a, a, an un mitigated display of emotion. They weep on one another's neck. And their embrace, likewise, is characterized as unhurried and lengthy. He says he, he falls on his neck and weeps on his neck for a good while. And fathers, can I parenthetically just encourage you to embrace your sons and daughters like this? And to be the kind of man whom your sons and daughters will one day want to be embraced like that. 
Now, I know I may have just made the naughty list for some of our teenagers in here because dad's going to actually do this. He's going to embrace you in this way. But you know you like it. And you know what? If your only application to this passage, dads, is to hug your kids and let them know unreservedly that you love them and embrace them in a, in a, in a way that, that displays no, no holds barred, that is not concerned for decorum and is willing to express itself emotionally and is unhurried and lengthy. If that's your only application to this text, then God would have borne fruit from his word this morning. But I think all of us, as we look at this and we see this father and the son being reunited, we recall Luke chapter 15, another son who had been lost for a time. And then God had brought him to his senses And we have that scene of the father of the prodigal who runs to embrace his son and he calls for the killing of the fattened calf and he calls for a feast and a celebration because what was lost has now been found and we realize that we are that prodigal. And we long for that embrace again with our father that is unreserved and lacks a concern for decorum. It is unhurried and lengthy. God, may you do that. So Jacob is reunited with his son, Joseph, and then Joseph prepares his family to meet with Pharaoh. That leads to the second section that we look at in this morning's passage, where Pharaoh meets with his family. Now, this section can be divided into three parts. First of all, Jacob preparing his brothers to meet with Pharaoh. He he tells them exactly what Pharaoh is going to ask, and he tells them exactly how to respond. He says, tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds that you're keepers of livestock, and that you need good pasture land for your flocks. The second part of the section is the brothers actually meeting with Pharaoh, and turns out Pharaoh asks exactly what Joseph said, and his brothers dutifully respond to Pharaoh exactly as Joseph instructed them to respond. And then that leads to the third part of this section where Pharaoh gives the land of Goshen, the best of the land of Egypt, to Jacob's family, not only to dwell in, but to raise their flocks. And he even gives them a job. He gives them employment. And he says, watch my flocks, my livestock as well. It's clear from this passage that that Joseph knows not only that the land of Goshen is the best land for farming and and for agriculture, but also that Joseph knows that if Pharaoh discovers that his brothers are lowly shepherds, that they are just keepers of livestock, then that will ensure that his family would be left alone, isolated from the Egyptians in the land of Goshen. Because as Moses reminds us in the closing verse of chapter 46, that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. To the Egyptians, shepherds, the keepers of livestock, were the lowest caste, and they wanted nothing to do with them. And so this is all part of Joseph's plan to ensure that his family would be isolated from the Egyptians. But why would Joseph want that? Why would Joseph want his family, his father and his household and all his brothers to be separated from the Egyptians? Or more importantly, why would God want that? Because again, God's in control. God's the one who's orchestrating this whole thing. So why would God want Joseph and his whole family to be isolated 
from the Egyptians. I believe that the reason here is because what God is doing here is he is building a nation and preserving a people. That's what he's doing in this season, in this time in history. He is building a nation and he is preserving a people. And Goshen was the perfect setting for God to build this family into a nation. Here in Goshen, Israel's family would be able to thrive and flourish and multiply greatly without interference from the Egyptians, free and unhindered from Egyptian interference. But not only free from Egyptian interference, but also free from Egyptian influence. Free from the influence of their polytheism, their complex system of false gods and pagan rituals. This is something that we know God was concerned about when his people were in the land of Canaan. And as the story of Israel continues into the book of Exodus and beyond, we we see the Lord commanding his people not to intermarry with the Canaanites so as not to distract them from nor to dilute the purity of worship of Yahweh. For this very same reason, God is also concerned about that while his people are in Egypt. They're going to be here for a long time, right? Many, many generations, 400 years they're going to be here. And he wants to ensure that the worship of Yahweh remain pure and unstained by the idolatry and paganism in the broader culture of Egypt. And so he uses Joseph here to orchestrate this meeting between his brothers and Pharaoh to ensure that Israel would be free from both the interference and the influence of the Egyptian culture. Not just in Joseph's day, but for the generations to come. Now, let me step aside for a moment and parenthetically uh, talk about something I think it's important here for us to understand as we're seeking to understand God's Word and apply God's Word in different places of Scripture. This brings out a difference a noticeable difference between how God operates and works in and through his people in the Old Testament and how he operates and works in and through his people in the New Testament. In moving from the Old Testament to the New, there is both what scholars call continuity and discontinuity. There are the things that don't change that are the same from one to the other, and there are things that do change and are different from the Old Testament to the New. For example, there is continuity in God's plan of redemption from the Old Testament to the New. There is not one way to be saved from from the judgment of sin in the Old Testament, and that didn't work, so a new way came about in the New Testament. In both Testaments, the only way to salvation is by faith in the Redeemer. The only difference is that Old Testament saints were looking forward to the arrival of a a Redeemer, whereas New Testament saints look back to his arrival, his birth, his life, his death, his crucifixion and resurrection. But there is continuity in how someone is saved in both the Old Testament and the New. Another example would be God's attributes, who God is in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is continuity there. It's not that we have a God of of law and judgment in the Old Testament and a God of grace and mercy and love in the New Testament. If we're careful about our Bible study and our study of the Scriptures, we'll see that He is the same God in both and that He does not change. He does demonstrate various aspects of His character and different attributes 
at certain times and certain seasons and in certain historical settings, but there is continuity in his attributes from the Old Testament to the New. But there is discontinuity in other ways as well. And one of the discontinuities is what we see this morning. The way in which God operates through and works in and through and uses his people from the Old Testament to the New. In the the Old Testament, and this is part of what we see here in the book of Genesis, God seems to be focused on building a nation and preserving a people. While in the New Testament, with respect to his people, God seems to be more focused on building a kingdom, not a nation, not a country with boundaries, but a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And instead of preserving a people, he is much more interested in the New Testament in sending his people. Now it's important for us to understand why there is this discontinuity between how God uses his people in the Old Testament and how he uses his people in the New Testament. This is desperately important because if we don't understand that difference, if I don't, if I don't get why there is this difference between the two, then I run the risk of making wrong interpretations of a text like this. For example, if, if, if I don't understand the difference between how God was, what, what God was trying to accomplish in and through his people in the Old Testament, then I might conclude from this text that God wants his people today to be isolated from the culture around it. That, that just as God was working to isolate Jacob's family, the Israelites, in the land of Goshen so that they would not be uh, interfered with or influenced by Egyptian culture, that we might presume that that is what God is doing today with his people, that he wants us to be isolated and removed from them. That God's primary goal for his people even today is that they would be free from any interference and influence from the broader culture, so they need to be separated physically and isolated from them and removed from them. But church, don't we know that that is in direct contradiction to God's revealed will for his people in this age? Jesus in John, in fact, turn to John 17 just for a moment. John chapter 17. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his followers fall asleep, but Jesus is praying. It's called the high priestly prayer there in John chapter 17. And Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for you and I. He's praying for his disciples, his followers, which includes us. And what does he pray? Let's listen to him as he speaks with his father and he prays for us. He says, I am praying for them. That's for us. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. How beautiful is that? God is glorified. Jesus is glorified in the church. He says, verse 11, I I am no longer in the world because he's leaving. He's about to be crucified and ascend back to the Father. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he prays for our unity. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now... 
I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So what does Jesus pray for us? Among other things, he asks that the Father not take us out of the world. Instead, he says that we're in the world. Not only are we in the world, but he has sent us into the world, into the culture. But as we are sent into, by Jesus into the world. He also prays that, that the Father would protect us from the evil one while we were in the world. So clearly we cannot take what God was doing with his people in Joseph's day and blindly superimpose that on the church today. In Joseph's day, God was building a nation and preserving a people because it was through this people that he would bring the Redeemer, the Rescuer, Jesus Christ, his Son, to rescue his people from judgment. And today, God is not building a nation, a country, but, an, but a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom of priests. And he's not about the business of preserving a people today. He's about the business of sending his people with the gospel to the ends of the earth because we've got a mission to accomplish before we meet, leave this second section, I want us to notice again here how Joseph is set up here as God's means of providing for and protecting his family. Back in chapter 45, when Joseph finally revealed who he was, he revealed his identity to his brothers. It is I, Joseph, your brother. He reminded his brothers, he told his brothers at that point, God sent me here ahead of you. He said it three times. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. He said, God sent me here to preserve a remnant for you on the earth. And when we looked at that, we noted that God's means of rescuing his people then was Joseph. And how that pointed us to Jesus Christ as our rescuer, our redeemer, the one who saves his people today. But what we see in this morning's passage is that God was using Joseph not just as his means of saving his people and rescuing his people, but God was also using Joseph as his means of providing for and protecting his people in the land. We see here this morning is it is Joseph who prepares his brothers to meet with Pharaoh. He tells them exactly what Pharaoh's going to ask. He tells them exactly how to respond. And then he goes to Pharaoh and he prepares Pharaoh to meet with his brothers. And then they have the meeting and they do exactly what Joseph said. In just a moment, we'll see that it is Joseph who brings his father before Pharaoh and his father blesses Pharaoh. And then what happens as a result of this is that Pharaoh gives Jacob's family the best of the land, all the land of Goshen to dwell in and to raise their flocks, and he gives them jobs. He gives them employment and says, watch over my livestock as well. And then in the final verse of our passage this morning, down in verse 12, you just look forward to that. Moses tells us that Joseph, not Pharaoh, not 
Jacob, not Judah, but Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his household with food according to the number of their dependents. And so God was sovereignly providing for and protecting his people in this, and his means of doing so was through Joseph. Now, let's put our shoes in the ourselves in the in the shoes of the Israelites who had been delivered out of bondage in Egypt 400 years later 430 years later they're hearing this story this story would have been a great comfort to them as they have escaped out of bondage in Egypt now they find themselves in a desert and they need saving from this predicament they need rescuing but they also need provision and protection in this journey they are hungry in this wilderness they are thirsty they are scared they are tired they are weak they are anxious and they are vulnerable and this story would have bolstered their faith in God as the means of providing for them and protecting them in the wilderness and just as God used Joseph as his means of provision and protection for his family in that day, so God used a means for his provision and protection for his people in Israel's wilderness wanderings. And, and his means of provision and protection then was Moses. But church, God also uses a means of provision and protection for his church today, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because church, we are also a people who need provision and protection today. Like Jacob in his wanderings and his journey, and like the Israelites hundreds of years later in their wilderness wanderings, we are aliens who are sojourning in a foreign land. And this land in which we are aliens is an evil one. There is evil within, and there is evil all around us. And we battle against sin. We battle against indwelling sin and we endure the grief and the mourning and the consequences of the sins of us and the sins of others around us. We live in a fallen world stained by sin and life in this fallen world can sometimes be painful and terrifying. And we need help and we need direction and we need provision and protection, even as we seek to be obedient to the call that God has placed on our lives, to take the gospel to the nations. We need help, we need provision, and we need guidance in that. And for us, God's means of provision and protection is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both our covenant rescuer and our covenant provider. Through his own suffering at Calvary, he rescued us from what we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against him. And through his, re his resurrection, church, he is alive today to help us, to support us, to guide us, to provide and protect for us in this foreign land in which we live. He provides us with everything that we need, everything. He graciously gives us righteousness and peace he sanctifies us. He sets us apart in, in real holiness so that we can be both in the world but not of the world. He reminds us not to be anxious about what we will eat or what we will wear because we have a Father who knows what we need. 
He gives us food for our physical bodies, but he also gives us food for our soul in the scriptures that he's given to us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us his word and to apply his word. He gives us a a new covenant family, the church. And he gives us a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations until he returns. Jesus Christ is the means through which God provides for and protects his people as his people sojourn as aliens in this foreign land in which we live. And so let us, church, let us embrace our Redeemer and lean on him for everything that we need. And then finally, in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 47, we see the third and final section of our passage that we're going to look at this morning. In this section, Joseph brings his father, Jacob, before Pharaoh, and then we have this this ironic and interesting scene where Jacob blesses Pharaoh. A couple of things I want us to note from this final section. One is that in the course of this interaction between Jacob and Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks him how old he is. He says he's 130, but then Jacob recalls his life of suffering. At the end of verse, um, verse 9, he says, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil have they been. Indeed, Jacob had, in fact, endured much difficulty and suffering in his life. Just listen to some of Jacob's life. While he was still in the womb, he struggled with his twin brother Esau. And he was hairy, too, right? So it was extra hard. He was raised in a home where his parents were extraordinarily dysfunctional. He stole his father's blessing by means of deception, and as a result of that, he had to flee from home because of the vengeance of his brother Esau. As a result of him fleeing from home, he spent decades in exile in serving his uncle Laban, who repeatedly deceived him and tricked him over and over again. He made plans to marry one of Laban's daughters, Rachel, whom he loved, and Laban tricked him. He ended up having four wives as a result of that, which resulted in tremendous strife in his home for years to come. He finally escaped from his uncle, fled from him, and eventually had to enter into a peace treaty with him in order to avoid further conflict with him. His only daughter, Dinah, was violated at Shechem. And then Jacob, for years after, lived in fear of reprisal from that because his sons killed the men of Shechem in vengeance of their sister. His true love, Rachel, died at an early age. His oldest son, Reuben, lay with one of his concubines. His favorite son, Joseph, was lost and presumed dead for years The remainder of his sons lied to him about Joseph's disappearance. And both he and his family endured a seven-year worldwide famine that caused him to have to leave the land of promise, this land that God had promised to him and to his family forever. It truly had been a hard life for Jacob. And so Jacob's summary of the days of the years of his life is that they had been few and evil. He was 130 years old at this point in his life. He was going to live another 17 years in Egypt. 
Few is not how I would describe the years of his life. Compared to ours, they weren't few. Compared to our life expectancy, compared to the life expectancy even of the Egyptians, they were not few. But compared to the other patriarchs, they were. His grandfather Abraham lived to be 175 years old. His father Isaac lived to be 180. And so compared to them, they were few. But the days of the years of his life had certainly been evil, marked by suffering and difficulty. But as we have seen, church, nearly every week for the last several Sundays in walking through the story of the life of Joseph, God has been using suffering to accomplish his purposes. He's been using suffering in the life of Jacob, in the life of Joseph, in the life of his brothers to accomplish his plans for his people. Let us mark it. Because God has us in this passage week upon week upon week for a reason. He wants us to understand and to get that he is sovereign, that he is in control no matter what's happening around us. And he is sovereign even over the suffering that we endure in our life. And he does that to accomplish his plans. We've talked about how his plans for you and I, for his people, who are his by faith through by, by grace through faith in Jesus. His plans for us include him glorifying himself in and through our lives, conforming us to the image of Jesus to look more like his son, and to see that we will, in fact, persevere in faith to the very end. And church, he's going to use betrayal and abandonment of family and friends. He's going to use pits and prisons. He's going to use famines and pharaohs and pretty much everything else, anything else that he needs to use in order to accomplish those ends. So again, Christian, no matter what is happening in the world around you, trust in the sovereignty of your Father. He's in control. And rest, rest in the provision and protection that Jesus has provided for you, is providing for you, and will provide for you in the future. Because it is enough. And then the second thing, final thing I want us to note from this last section is that Jacob blessed Pharaoh here. I wonder, I wonder how Moses' original audience, the, the Israelites wandering in the desert 430 years later, would have responded and reacted to that news, seeing Jacob blessing Pharaoh. I think some of them probably would have responded in anger. What do you mean he's blessing Pharaoh, he's our enemy. Maybe some of them would have responded in shame. How how could our ancestor be blessing the ancestor of our taskmaster who killed so many of us and treated us so harshly? But I think a remnant of them, the remnant of true Israel among them, would have responded to this and seen hope in this. Because see, blessing in the ancient Near East, blessings always flowed downhill. The one who was more influential and had greater authority always blessed the ones who, was, who were less influential and had less importance. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, as he is record, recounting the story of Abraham and that priest king Melchizedek that we read about in chapter 15, And where Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he said this in Hebrews 7, verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by 
the superior. And so we, we would expect, what we'd expect to happen here in this story is that Pharaoh, the king, would bless Jacob, the foreigner, the stranger, the alien who had come into his land. We would expect Pharaoh to bless Jacob, but instead it is Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. And this would have been a sign to the Israelites, a, a reminder to them, wandering the wilderness of Sinai 430 years later, that, that Egypt was always beneath them. That the offspring of the serpent here referenced by or, or depicted in this story by the Egyptians and Pharaoh, that the offspring of the serpent would never overrun the offspring of the woman. But as we watch the Pharaoh, excuse me, as we watch the patriarch here blessing Pharaoh, Jacob blessing Pharaoh, that there is a, a deep irony here and a dark foreboding of very troubling times to come for this family. In less than 30 years, the people of Egypt and the new Pharaoh of Egypt will forget who Joseph is and will forget what Joseph had done to save them from the famine. And they'll become fearful of the Israelites because they will thrive in Goshen and they will multiply greatly in Goshen and so they will determine to treat them harshly and to make them their slaves. And they will hold them in bondage for over 400 years. But here's the thing. God was in control of even that. At no time was he not in control. God was in control and he was sovereign not only of the ascendancy of Joseph to the vizier of Egypt, and he was sovereign not only of rescuing his family out of the famine in the land of Canaan, but God was also sovereign over Israel's captivity. Turn, turn back to Genesis chapter 15 to see, this, to see this fleshed out. In Genesis chapter 15, right in the middle of this covenant-cutting ceremony where God is, is renewing his covenant promises to Abraham, the father of the, the people of Israel. He, he's, he's renewing his promises and he, and he has this elaborate, formal, covenant-cutting ceremony that he, that he does with Abraham. And right in the middle of that, God speaks to him. And I want you to listen to what God says to Abraham at this point. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 15, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants. That word means slave. They will be slaves there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So you see, church, God planned this whole thing. The whole thing, not just the pit, not just the prison, not just the famine, not just the dreams and all of that. But he also planned Israel's bondage in Egypt. Now why? 
Why would he do that? Two reasons. One we've already covered. He was building a nation and preserving a people through whom he would bring his son, the redeemer, the rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save God's people from the sin and the judgment they deserve because of their sin. But secondly, he was preparing the land for the people. Not only was he preparing the people for the land, but he was preparing the land itself to receive back his people. Verse 16 of chapter 15 tells us that they, the Israelites, Abraham's offspring, shall come back here. Here is the promised land, Canaan, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites are the people of the land of Canaan. And in that day, they worshiped false gods. They were the neighbors of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of their worship of false gods, God told the patriarchs not to marry the the, the women of the land, not to take wives from the Canaanites. But they had not yet fully given themselves over to their sin. But in time, they would. This is why God tells Abram here, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But in the fourth generation, again, a generation is not how we define a generation today, thinking 25 to 30 years. There, a generation was how long you live, which is about 100 years, so a fourth generation would be 400 years. So in that fourth generation, the iniquity of the Amorites would be complete. So God was prophesying here about the Canaanites in the fourth generation in that ensuing time that they would fully give themselves over to sin and debauchery and godlessness and idolatry. And when that occurs, and not before, when that occurs, God would bring his people back who in the ensuing 400 years had become a great nation and a powerful army, that God would bring them back to the land and drive out the Amorites and the Canaanites as part of his judgment because their iniquity had been completed. And so back in Joseph's day, we see God sovereignly work to to both build a nation and preserve a people, but we also see that what God is doing, he's preparing the land for his people. He's back in Canaan. He's not just in Egypt walking over, watching over his people. He's also still in Canaan in those 400 years, patiently waiting for the Amorites to complete their iniquity, to give themselves fully over to their sin and godlessness and idolatry. And in so doing, he was preparing the land for the people, and it would take another 400 years. So church, as we, as we praise God, for sovereignly rescuing the family of God, the people of God, and providing for them and protecting them, let us not forget that he also sovereignly placed them in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. We've said this before, but we would be well served by repeating it again, to never judge God's actions in a snapshot. The actions that God is taking in your life right now have their root in eternity past. And those actions are but a tiny portion of an eternal decree whose fulfillment is far, far in the future, probably well beyond your life and mine. And so when good things happen and you're rescued and there's blessing 
and there's provision. Praise God for that, but don't judge what God is doing in a snapshot. And when there are hard times and when there is difficulty and when there is suffering and when your life is filled with challenge, don't judge what God is doing in a snapshot. Instead, rest in his sovereign care and his sovereign provision and his sovereign protection and his sovereign love until he makes all things new. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you, having been reminded once again that you are so much bigger than our finite minds can even imagine, that you are so much stronger, so much more powerful, so much more omniscient than we can even consider. And that you are sovereign over everything that happens. Father, I pray for those in this room, those within the sound of my voice, for whom that is a challenge because you're going through a hard time. And may the confidence of Jacob, the confidence of Joseph, the confidence of the people of Israel as they look back on this story reverberate in my brothers' and sisters' hearts that you're in control and that what you are doing is for the good of those who love you and called according to your purpose and is for your glory ultimately. Father, to the degree that we need to wrestle with that in order to believe it, Lord, may we wrestle with that and not give up on that and certainly not give in to some kind of warped understanding of who you are that minimizes you so that we can put you in a box And not lay those things at your feet. But Lord, instead that we would say, yep, you're in control. And we don't understand what you're doing and we don't know why you're doing it, but we trust that what you're doing is for our good and your glory. And so we're not going to judge what you're doing, Lord, by a snapshot in a moment in time. But we're going to look at this in view of eternity and see that you are working out your plans for your people. And so in faith, we praise you. Father, we pray for those who are among us who cannot count them as part of God's family. And so as they see these promises to God's family, they they feel left out. They feel as though this is not including them. Father, we believe that you have brought them within the sound of your voice this morning to hear the good news that Jesus, you sent your son Jesus Christ as the offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death forever so that that person who thinks they are outside the family of God can be brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. God, we ask in just in a supernatural way that you would give them the faith right now as they sit there, as they sit on that couch, as they sit downstairs, wherever they are, God, that you would give them a faith that is far beyond their own ability to imagine, to trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of their rebellion against you. And then, Lord, by your grace, would you welcome them into the family and remind them of these good and true promises that are true for all people that are in your kingdom. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.